הבאים ל-The אהלן וברוכים הבאים ל-The אני רועי ויינברג, איתי כאן סתיו נמש, מה המצב סתיו? אהלן רועי. שגב לצערנו חשב שיש לו קורונה, בסוף אין לו קורונה, הוא לא איתנו היום, אז החלפנו אותו באחד מכתבי ה-NBA הגדולים של השנים האחרונות, ה-Wordback. ה-Wordback back באמת כל מי שעוקב אחרי הליגה מכיר אותו, אחד מהכתבי ביט שחיים מקבוצה מהגדולים ביותר. הוא סיקר את הלייקרס בין 1997 ל-2004, בשנים של שקומי ופיל ג'קסון, ואת הניקס בין 2004 ל-2013, בשנים של אדי קריסט, סטפן מרברי, ובהמשך קרמלו אנטוני. אבל בדה-סוויפ, כמו דה-סוויפ, כל משהו היה חייב להתפקשש, ולכן הגענו, עשינו שאלות, נערכנו לרעיון, ושכחנו ללחוץ על הרקורד בהתחלה. סתיו, הבמה שלך. כן, אז יש פה פדיחה, אני לא אגיד באשמת מי. הווארד, um, um, just so you know if you're listening and even if you're not, um, we lost the first few minutes of the interview because I'm not a producer and I forgot to post record, but uh, we got most of it and uh, let's go. Um, the best I can tell you is this. The NBA has a very uh, extensive and well-staffed security division. And it is staffed by former police officers, former FBI agents, a lot of people who know their way around an investigation. So when you see something that says the NBA is investigating, it's not Adam Silver picking up the phone and making a couple of calls or, you know, PR staffers or whoever it may be. No, the NBA has people who actually do these investigations who often, I believe, know more than the local police department that's actually working on whatever the case is in their own backyard. The NBA investigates these things fully. They always know more than any of us do. I guarantee you they, are, they know way more right now than any of us do about uh, the John Morant situation, not just about the uh, appearance of a gun in an Instagram video that set off this particular chain of events, but also the previous incidents that have been reported in the Washington Post and elsewhere. I guarantee you the NBA knows a, a lot more detail about all of those things and all the context to them. I say all that to say that, yeah, that, that, that they're going to come to a conclusion at some point, I think sooner than later, right? You don't want to leave the Grizzlies in the lurch. You don't want to have this um, impact uh, their team and the race in general any more than it needs to. You want to come to a speedy conclusion about what happened uh, and determine you know, just what, what the, the approach should be. I wouldn't even say that this absence right by John Morant right now is a suspension. They didn't, the Grizzlies didn't call it that because I think what they were doing is buying time. Jaw, stay away from the team because it's not appropriate to be here right now. And soon enough, the NBA will render its judgment. And when they do, we'll know what the suspension is. And it will, it will obviously include the games that he's already missed. That's the way I, I see it. Do you see any world that the NBA decides to levy a severe punishment on one of their young um, upcoming uh, stars? They're going to punish him. Absolutely, there's going to be some discipline. Like, I don't have any doubt in my mind that there's going to be some sort of suspension here. Now, the, the degree of that suspension, the length of it, is really dependent on what they determine about that video, among other things. We don't know as we sit here on you know, a Wednesday afternoon. We don't know, uh, afternoon for me anyway, we don't know whether that was a real gun. For yeah. instance, we don't know if it was his gun. We don't know if it was a loaded gun. We don't know if it was a gun that was transported on a team flight or not. We don't know if it was a gun that was taken over state lines. All of these details 
matter. And we truly do not know for sure any of that. There's a wide range of possibilities here. But assuming that that was a real gun and assuming that it was his and that he might have transported it across state lines on a team flight, there's a whole lot of stuff going on there. There are laws as well as NBA rules that are being violated. And all of that will factor into to what the discipline is. That he is a superstar and one of the young faces of the league, I don't think is is really material to this. They're so going to – the yeah. 50-game suspension that has been reported uh, is a realistic option? He would be like suspended for more than half of a season? Uh, the 50-game um, framework – was first stated by my good friend Mark Stein, who I'm sure you guys know, um, yeah. on on his podcast. He, a short time later, tweeted out a clarification. There is no 50-game standard. There is no standard per- period. There is just whatever the NBA decides. Now, there are upper limits that are spelled out in the collective bargaining agreement, and if you pass those limits, the union can then you know challenge the... The, the length of the suspension and have a grievance process and all this stuff. But there is no standard here. It could be two games. It could be 20. It could be 40. I, I, the, we don't know. We absolutely do not know. I can't imagine it will be that kind of length. And then the other thing you need to consider too is in his own statement, John Morant alluded to the possibility of, or, or the idea of not handling stress well, which kind of uh, implies maybe some mental health aspect of this. And however people may feel about that, and I know there's very cynical views uh, as soon as that is is the go-to answer in a, in a time of crisis, the NBA, again, they're going to investigate on that level too. And if they determine that that some of this is, is just John needing time away to deal with personal matters, mental health issues, family issues, whatever it may be, and I'm just speculating, then that will be part of this too. And that might, you know, does that mitigate the length of the suspension? Um, is it part suspension and part just leave of absence again we don't know enough to know how that will be configured do you foresee any long-term effect on Ja even if he gets like 20 30 40 games well you hope that the long-term effect is that he uses this as a growing experience right though yeah. you hope the long-term effect is whatever led him to get in the fight with the 17 year old whatever, whenever it was last summer or whatever, whatever led to the incident at the mall and the other things that were reported in the Washington post, whatever led to him deciding, deciding to broadcast on Instagram himself at a strip club, holding a gun, whatever led to that, whatever he's going through, you hope that the long-term effect of this is personal growth and evolution and that he you know, if, if it was something he did, you know, it, it, like if he was fully in control of his situation and decided to do that anyway, then it's then it's a matter of personal judgment. If it's he's in some sort of crisis and this is just a way of acting out or it's a response to that crisis, then you hope it, that this is just something that helps him focus on whatever that crisis is and gets through it. But in terms of his career, guys have come back from far worse things than this in this league and others. I'm not particularly concerned at this moment about what does this mean for John Morant's career? I think if he gets things right in his own life and, and uh, his surroundings, you know, he's going to be fine. Moving on. Uh, let's look at the uh, old playoff uh, race in the West in the end days. Then all of them are really tight in the East. It's the lower seeds, but in the West it's go 13 to six. 
Do you think it's a random year or the playing tournament has an effect on the whole playoff race situation? I tend to think that it's never any one thing. Um, this is a historically uh, tight race, especially in the West. And just in general, this is as much parity as, as I think we've ever seen in this league and certainly in my 26 years of covering it. The play-in tournament at least has plays a role in this, right? More teams feel like they're still in it. And we talked about this going into the trading deadline. Now, we still ended up having an active trading deadline in large part because the Nets were forced to implode uh, by their own players. Um, but if not for that, it wouldn't have been quite as dramatic of a, of a trade deadline. And there was a lot of talk that there just weren't enough sellers. There weren't enough sellers because all the teams that would normally be selling off their veterans and tanking aren't incentivized to do that in today's NBA. Um, if you're 12th or 13th and you have a shot to get to 10th to the play-in, you're trying to get to the play-in. And if you're in the seven to 10 range, you're trying to get to six to avoid the play-in. And if you're sixth, you're trying to get to the top four to get home court advantage. So there's just incentives all throughout, unless you're one of the bottom two or bottom three teams in each conference. And so the incentive structure has changed partially because of the play-in tournament, partially because of the flattened lottery odds that they introduced a few years back where, you know, being the worst team in the NBA or one of the bottom two or three no longer gives you as great of an advantage even in the lottery. So even in a year where we've got Victor Wembanyama, this generational talent coming into the league, there's not that same kind of race to the bottom as we used to see. So all those things play a role. Um, the distribution of talent is different now. We went through that super team era where teams had three all-stars, sometimes four stars in the case of the Warriors for a few years. Right now, yeah, there's a bunch of teams with two and there's some teams with like two and a half. <laughs> There's no, there's no teams. There are no real super teams. I consider a super team to be a team that has three guys who are all top 15 or top 20 players right now. Even the Suns are not a super team. Like Durantis is a top, whatever, top five, six, seven player in the league. And Devin Booker is a top 20. Chris Paul's not top no, 20 anymore. Not even close. So like even the Suns are not a super team. Yeah, so there's so there's a lot more distribution of talent uh, across the league, and I think that plays a role. Too. Uh, we're speaking about him just off topic. Um, there's a lot of talk, and probably well-deserved, that uh, Nikola Jokic will win a, a third straight MVP title. And he's very well-deserved because he has his best season, uh, even better than the other two that won MVP. Don't you think it will look historically very bad if uh, Jokic will be one of only three uh, three straight MVP winners and he haven't uh, had a real playoff success? <laughs> so this has become a very uh, strange and fraught debate this season in particular. And I feel like every year the MVP debate gets uh, worse in some way. Smarter in some ways, dumber in some ways. Uh, more malicious in some yeah. ways, crazier yeah. in some ways. We're just, we're, we're out of control. We, we just need to all just like take a deep breath. Um, especially people at a certain level, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Um, I will just say this. Um, it's a regular season award. It's a single season award. It's not about what you did a year ago or two years ago. It's not about who won it a year ago or two years ago. It is about, Every game that started on October 22nd or whatever it was through April 15th or whatever it is. That's it. That's all it is. It's not about what you did in the playoffs. It's not what we expect you to do in these playoffs that are upcoming. Um, 
It's very simple. It is a regular season 82 game award. And that's it. If Nikola Jokic in the determination of 100 voters is the deserving MVP when we get to the end of this regular season, then that's where it'll go. And if it's Embiid or Giannis, then it'll be them. Jason Tatum is kind of faded, but he's still in this discussion. Luke is still in this discussion. People have their own standards and about how many games you need to win and all that other stuff. There is no set definition for the award and everybody does it their own way. All that said, if Nikola Jokic has had the most worthy season and is, is, is voted MVP for a third straight year, it's not, it, it's not a different honor, right? We don't say, well, this guy's a one-time and this guy's a three-time. If he happens to, to tie Larry Bird and Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Russell as the only others to have done this, great. It means that like those guys, he put together three straight really great seasons in which he was clearly the best player in the league on one of the best teams in the league. That's it. It's very okay. simple. Uh, it's still weird. You cannot say it's not weird because the other two... Um, right. Yo, I, I'm not saying I'm not agree with you, Howard. I'm just saying when you look at it and, and think about it historically, it is weird. Maybe weird is okay, but it is it, weird. It, it, it. <laughs> um, so a couple different things here to also consider. We know there've been a bunch of guys. I don't have the, the, the number in front of me, but there's a bunch of guys who have won two in a row and didn't win the third, right? For a variety of reasons. Um, yeah. Maybe their third season wasn't as good as the first two. Maybe somebody was just more deserving. Maybe something weird happened that season, whatever. There are tons of guys who have won two in a row and not won a championship. Um, so just, it's just to say, we're, we're creating a standard because only three guys have ever done this before. And those guys went on to careers or even in those, even in those spans, won championships, went to the finals. I get that. But without knowing without being able to mind read the voters back then, many of whom are probably dead. <laughs> I can't tell you, I can't tell you definitively if Bill Russell's or Wilt Chamberlain's or Larry Bird's uh, winning three straight factored in their postseason success, or did they also look at it just as a singular season award? And those guys just happened to have three straight super dominant seasons. Um, it may be pure coincidence, guys. It may be pure coincidence that those three guys who have done three in a row had championship success along the way. I mean, now, being an MVP, usually championship success or often follows. But listen, let's just take it back to, the, to a single MVP, right? A single MVP, the highest individual achievement in the league. Plenty of guys have won MVP and did not win the championship. That year or the year before or the year after or the year after that right? Russell Westbrook still hasn't won a championship. James Harden still hasn't won a championship. Steve Nash didn't win championships after his, you know, uh, two MVPs there. Are, so it, it's, it is an individual award. It's an individual award. That's also got team success baked into it. Cause most of the history of the award is guys on 50 plus win teams that were top two or three in their conference with a couple of exceptions. So, but it is an, it is an individual award and nobody wins a championship without great players around them. So we, we overcomplicate this sometimes, I think, by saying, well, but what about all these other things? Well, it's not about those other no. things. It's about the 82 games. And by the way, we don't know where the, the Nuggets are going this postseason. We, this may be a completely different discussion three months Let's ago. hope so. Yeah, so we have another question about the regular season awards. 
Uh, Jalen Jackson Jr. is considered as the favorite for the defensive player of the year, but he only plays something like 28 minutes per game, not all of the games. Do you think that uh, the voters will factor his uh, foul trouble or uh, minutes per game compared to Evan Mobley or uh, Brook Lopez? So defensive player of the year, I think annually for me, as somebody who's been a voter more years than not um, during my career, defensive player of the year is always, I think the hardest one, like most improved can be difficult. Some years, sixth man can be a little bit fraught. Some years defensive player of the year is just really tough. Um, We don't, we, even in this analytics age, we still don't have great defensive stats to measure individual defense and a lot of it is, is contextual and has to do with your team and the, your teammates and scheme and all this other stuff. None of us who are voting are watching all 82 games of every single team in the NBA. I know that's, that's breaking shocking, news. Shocking. We don't actually watch 80, it's be 82 times 30. Um, yeah, it's kind of impossible, right? So you rely on a combination of things. Some observation what and watching a lot of games, but not all of them. Um, some of the defensive metrics, talking to scouts and coaches and players like you do everything you can to try to get the best sense of it. But it's, you know, all of it's inexact science. All the awards are inexact science. Defensive player of the year is the toughest. So when you ask, do you factor in the minutes? I would. Um, I look at games played and then I look at minutes played. Um, but there's no one standard. It's it's kind of a all right. Does he does it feel like he's got the best case for defensive player of the year based on his individual defense and what that means for the Grizzlies defense? Yes. Okay. Does he have some of the raw stats, the box score stats? Yes. Does he have the advanced stats? Yes. So I might be checking off all these boxes and then maybe I'll get to Evan Mobley or somebody else and go, Ooh, wait a minute. He's checking off all these boxes too. And then I'll go to minutes played. And it's like, Oh man, this guy played 400 more minutes than the other guy. And then you start to factor that in too, because MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, all of these things are of the year, which means the whole year. So, yeah, if you if you were the best defender in the NBA, but you only played 45 games out of 82, I, I, I'm dismissing that case entirely. I, you can't do it. Like, it's the Joel Embiid Rookie of the Year case, right? He played, yeah. like, 23 games or something. So, Malcolm Brogdon won. I voted for Malcolm Brogdon. I still feel perfectly fine about that. Was Joel Embiid the better player? Sure. But you can't be rookie of the year when you only played like one sixth of the year. So um, all all of these things have to be factored. If we open the award uh, box, sorry, um, I have have an opinion, strong opinion uh, about the sixth man of the year. If you play... 30, 32, 33 minutes and just come off the bench, you're not supposed to be eligible because it's not the spirit of the word. What do you think? Wait, wait, is too many minutes yeah. you're saying? You should be a... You should be a, you, a true you sub. To, to be a true sub. Be more of a... Because if you're not starting... And you, so you, you're so like, than... you get what I'm saying? So like Mano Ginobili. Yes. So you're, you're down on Mano Ginobili. You're a Mano Ginobili yes. hater. This is it's what you're totally true. <laughs> The only one. Nobody like... hates Manu Ginobili. Everybody no, Manu is great, but um, he's not a true so six you're man. That, no, because he was a starter who they assigned to the bench for rotation purposes, and they still had they still finished the game with him. He was kind of like a a, a fake. Yeah, starter. like the open, uh, like when uh, in baseball the starter doesn't start, but then play uh, six and seven innings. It's the same. He's the true starter. I get what you're saying. Um, 
And and I, I think if you wanted to take, take like a super purist approach on, on the definition, I guess there's that. I mean, you know, the NBA's definition is simple. And again, they don't define any of these awards. But for sixth man, you just have to have come off the bench for more games than you started. And there is certainly no qualifier for minutes played or whether you played fourth quarters or finished games, played the last five minutes of games. Um, so you're not... And I don't know. Listen, if you go all the way back, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the award, like would your definition hold up all the way back to its its uh, its roots? I don't know. Michael sure. Cooper is a great example for a true six man. Mm. No, but most of uh, the six men of the year played more than twenty four minutes per game, so they were on the court for more time than. Okay, being okay, on the you're bench. not buying my theory. Thank you. Moving on. <laughs> So we've been yes, yes, yes. earlier on the games played amount. So do you think that uh, in the load management uh, area, when players, great players play like uh, 55, 60 games uh, at a season, the entire uh, voting on awards will be different? Like the NBA will demand that player, player needs to play 60, 65 games per year in order to win the MVP or the defensive player of the year? So that concept has been floated, but it's really important for people to understand that load management was not created by the players um, and generally is not uh, dictated by the players. Um, Adam Silver tried to convey some of this during his All-Star Weekend press conference that load management is it's, it's a it's a team policy. And more than that, it's a policy dictated by uh medical staffs sports science people it's not even in the hands of the coach for the most part and and often not the player so someone's coming back from injury or a surgery or whatever else we have all this data now they they wear you know these trackers during practice and and you and and we've got the tracking uh cameras during games to log how many miles and 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 how how fast a guy is running and all these other things and these these biometric devices that they wear during practice that tell teams how fatigued a guy is and and, and all of this stuff and they're using all of this data to say we think this guy needs a night off or we think this guy's in danger of of being injured because of what the biometrics are telling us about his fatigue levels and besides that this is somebody who's coming back from a really serious surgery we don't want to overdo it or it may simply be you know what we just want to keep this guy fresh for the playoffs. So teams are laying out a plan, sometimes way in advance and sometimes just on the fly, to say this player needs time off, needs needs this night off. Um, occasionally, yes, some players have had more have, have had more of a, a say in their own uh, load management plan. I think Kawhi Leonard has, has been an example of that at times. But for the most part, if you see a guy taking a night off, he didn't ask for it. In fact, most of these guys are the first to tell you, I wanted to play. They told me I have to, I have to rest tonight. And so if you start tying lo- uh, postseason awards to games played, or you, if, if people going to the extreme of saying, well, we should tie salaries to, to games played and minutes played and all this, the players would still want – they've wanted to play the whole time. They would still want to play. If you were putting – if you were trying to create these new incentives for guys to play, it may be aimed at the wrong person. Because it's, it's, it's not the players who have the authority here. It's the teams. So what the league and the Players Association need to do, and, in, and with the cooperation of their medical staffs, is figure out a way 
to do this in a way that doesn't feel like fans are being robbed of seeing their favorite players, whether it's on national broadcasts or whether it's because you bought tickets or whatever else. They are breaking faith with their customers, and that's a bad look. So do you think that an expansion of the league can be a possible solution to the load management? Like if there will be two more teams and each team will play 66 games in the same length of season, the, the load will be easier. So is it something that... I don't think they're ever shortening yeah. the season. I don't think they're ever shortening the season. Uh, they may expand at some point, which I'm not sure is a great idea anyway for other reasons. But um, no, I don't. I don't think. Uh, I don't think expansion is going to, to solve the load management problem. Um, I don't. I don't know what solves load management other than more pushback on the medical staffs. But if pushback on the medical staffs leads to you know a guy getting injured, especially a star getting injured or re-injured because he came back from a surgery and the medical staff said, Oh, this guy needs to, to, to not play back-to-backs. And the team says, no, screw it. We're doing it anyway. And then the guy, you know, blows his knee out. It's, it's, it's just a, it's a very fraught discussion, right? Like from the, from the player perspective, it's their own health and careers and their longevity from a team's perspective. They have more, literally more money invested in these guys than they've ever had in the history of the game. So when you give a guy a $250 million contract, you're also trying to protect your investment. Also, this has to do with a, a broader trend over in recent years of players, coaches, franchises, everybody valuing the playoffs over the regular season and deciding that it's okay to not play as much or miss games in the regular season because we want you fresh in April, May, and June. And because that's now the way everybody sees it, it has devalued the regular season, which is part of the reason why Adam Silver wants the in-season tournament. That's a fun, something I wanted to ask in that matter. Do you think we as fans and we as media, as um, also uh, some part in the whole load management thing, because it, as you said, if the only things that matter is the, getting the championship, so uh, it doesn't matter if you finish fifth or sixth seed or seventh seed, as long as you're in the playoff, it's okay. And we get it from there. That's why players doesn't, don't play, even it's uh, team-initiated, don't play as much games because the only thing that matters is the playoff and we we value only rings. Maybe you have some responsibility in that? Um, do we, do who, does who still have some responsibility? Us as fans that? and us as media. Us as fans. Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, yeah, I think that's fair. I think the conversation around the NBA, you know, it's kind of circular, Right. Like we respond to what we see the teams and the players doing. And so that's part of the conversation. But we as fans and media also do have a little bit of a, oh, that team won 60 games. So what? What'd, what'd they do with it? Or, oh, Nikola Jokic won back-to-back MVPs. So what? He still hasn't won, gotten to the finals, right? <laughs> said that. So the more we talk, who would say, who yeah. would ever say that? The more we talk about the game that way, the more that, you know, the guys on the studio shows talk about the game that way. Um, it does sort of feed into this devaluing of the regular season, but ultimately it's the teams that make these decisions, right? Like, like our, our opinions are only relevant to a, to a, to a small extent. Um, you know, the, the, the vast, you know, if, if we're, if we're going to, if, if the point is to point fingers at, at who's to blame for so much load management, it, it, it's science really. It's, it's the fact that we just have more data and more information than we've ever had before. And whether they're applying all that, correctly or not i don't even know how to, to judge but people who are smarter than me and who are working in that field 
in um in in you know uh player health and 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 the data surrounding player health they tell me no this this is solid this, this like we're doing this on a on a on a uh, on a true factual basis that if you understand the the methodology behind it it makes sense and so maybe maybe the other way we need to look at this is that this is some kind of inflection point and the the new and this will just be the new normal and maybe we're just all going to have to get used to it maybe there's other ways of managing this and maybe load management's never going away because we have this data now and as long as we have this data teams are going to use I'm going to make it harder Stephen Gandhi asked uh, I'm not I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember exactly what he said but uh, he said something of the sort of um we have the best medical staff the best data and all the best treatment, best shoes, best equipment that we ever had. And we do load management and player, star players play between 70 and 60 games this season and still injuries are not going down. Maybe the game is just bigger, faster these days and it doesn't really factor in. Or the data isn't calculated the right way. Maybe it's minutes and not games. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look... Uh... Stan Van Gundy's point was, you know, I, I think um, totally understandable. And especially as somebody who's been in the game as long as Stan has and worked in the game at the levels he has, it, 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 like it's the, it's the right question, right? I can't give you the answer because I'm not a sports scientist. Um, I'm not the director of player care for any of these teams. I would be very bad at that job. Um, but it's the right question. And I will say this. If, if, um, if the teams, if general managers who ultimately hire all these these sports science folks and the medical staffs, if they can't answer that intelligently, and if the medical staffs and the sports science folks themselves can't give us all as as media, as fans, as coaches, as players, as everybody who who enjoys a sport, if if they can't give us an answer that makes sense to answer Stan's question, then that's a problem. And as of right now we don't have enough of those answers in a way that we can all say, Oh no, 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 no. It does make sense because X, Y, Z, right? I, I can't give you that answer. What I can say, and, and Stav, you alluded to this, the game is different now. It's, it's a much more wide open game. The pace is higher than ever because of the emphasis on the three point shot. The court is basically wider, right? Dimensionally, geographically, you know, physically it's the same damn court, but Guys have to cover a ton more ground because everybody's a three-point threat now, and the court is just spaced out in a way that if you go back and pull up film from the 90s, it doesn't even look like the same game. Everybody's just packed in the middle of the paint. And because of the ground you have to cover and the amount of, of, of lateral movement and the stress on your knees and the miles you're running, everything, all of that factors in. So maybe all of these innovations, load management and, and all, everything that goes with it, Maybe, okay, well, we're still having blown Achilles and blown ACLs and everything else. Maybe it's because that's that's the most you can do to try to offset the increase in strain and miles and pace, and it's still not enough because the game is just different. The other thing, and this is a really, 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 really important factor, and I don't want it to get lost because I should have started with this. Baxter Holmes at ESPN.com wrote about this a couple of years ago where the line from the... Uh, the, the line you can draw from the injuries in the NBA back to AAU, which is the youth basketball in this country, that's where we're missing it. Guys are getting to the NBA 
with a ton of miles and and uh, a ton of strain and everything else already on their knees and ankles and hips and cores and everything else because of how much they're playing in youth basketball, which was not the case for the players who were arriving in the NBA in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s necessarily. So if you were getting to the NBA with that many more miles already on there, like you, you like everybody's a, a ticking time bomb. Basically you can only log so many miles or have so much strain on, on your joints and, and everything else. So that's a big part of this too. It's, it's not just, Oh, Michael Jordan played 82 games and he played 38 minutes a night. Okay, great. He also had a shorter career by the way. Um, and he didn't have to cover as much ground because we didn't have, it wasn't the three point era. It was a, the, the style of the game and the pace of the game. The pace of the game was so much slower. Um, and you can see that just go to basketball reference and, and, and click the pace column. You'll, you'll see how, how much different the game is today um, to say nothing of just looking at video. Um, all of that matters. And we can't ignore any of the historical changes or the fact that modern NBA players are getting to the league, having already logged a ton of miles uh, at the AAU level and are probably more injury prone because of it. Okay, we talked injuries and load management. It's time to light things up. Uh, you were once covering uh, both the Knicks and the Lakers, and I need good stories. So maybe something from the Shakobi era, maybe something from your Knicks days, very popular teams in Israel, and also we need some good stories. <laughs> wow. Um, off the top of my head... Um, God, it's, 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 it's always like, it's a, it's a broad question, which I, I appreciate because like, it, it gives me like, there's a lot, there's a lot I could draw from there. Um, I'm always bad with the, you know, it's like when you ask somebody, um, tell me a joke and, and your mind immediately yeah, goes exactly. blank. It's, a, it's kind of the same thing. Um, I, I don't know. What do you want to know about Shaq and Kobe or what do you want to know about the next years? Like, give me a I specific hear, question. I'll I want to hear a funny interaction in the locker room, something not basketball related, uh, something funny, something quirky that happened, something weird maybe. I don't know. Um, who is the most, like, in Nick's locker room, who is the one that has the worst body odor? <laughs> <laughs> not something I've paid that close of attention to. And usually by the time guys are coming in the locker room, they've already showered. So, um, you know, in the, in the Laker days, um, and we had, we had more time around these guys back then too. Uh, you know, access has changed. Our time in the locker room has gotten shorter. Guys aren't in the locker room when we're in there as much anymore either. So like a lot of stuff changed over the years. Um, with the Lakers, it was just kind of, you know, like the stuff I remember about that was, you know, um, it's just, it's just odd off the wall things, right? It's like Tim Kawakami, uh, was the beat writer for the LA times when I was at the LA daily news covering the Lakers. Um, and Kawakami was a very aggressive and blunt, uh, interviewer. So, he would get on Shaq's nerves. We all got on Shaq's nerves at times. And Shaq was, was really moody at one point. Phil Jackson had even dubbed him the big <laughs> moody. Um, and, and Shaq, Shaq won't even disagree with that. Like he, he knows he was, he was moody. Shaq could be the life of the party on, on his best days and a big, you know, prankster joke teller. Um, just, he's a, he's just a great people person. He loves being around people and he loves being the life of, of, of the party or their, you know, he loves being like the, the, the energy in the room, but, he was moody and he had his, his down moments too. So 
he could be a really great interview and he could also be a really crappy interview on the days that he just wasn't in a mood for it. Kawakami would pester him with whatever it was. And I don't remember what the issue was at this particular point in time. And this was probably in 2000, 2001 range. And Tim would ask him something and, and Shaq would say like, you know, that's a stupid question, bro. Ask me a better question. And he would do this over and over. And it would just, this has got to be one of these little snits. And one day, I don't know, like a, after a week of this, of Shaq just kind of, you know, you know, uh, you know, just putting the brakes on anything that Tim asked. Tim asked a question and Shaq, who was often sitting at his locker and looking down, all of a sudden he kind of looks up and his eyes kind of light up and he smiles and he goes, Kawakami asked a good question. <laughs> Kawakami asked a good question. And he jumps up. He jumps up and he envelops Tim Kawakami. He grabs him. You can just imagine. So Tim Kawakami, like average height, maybe, I don't know, five, nine or so, five, eight. And Shaq being Shaq sized grabs him and starts pogo sticking him around the <laughs> locker room at Staples center in the home locker room. Um, like we, Tim just disappeared and was just holding on for dear life. I have no idea. And Shaq's just bouncing around the room, holding Tim Kawakami. There's your great, there's your Shaq great. story. Um, it's more, it's the Kobe years, but is it true that DJ and Benga had the PR guy? It was a rumor. That DJ Mbenga had his own yes. PR guy. That was after my time. I, I covered them from 97 to 04. So by the time uh, Mbenga came along, I was in New York. Um, that sounds familiar, though. I think that might have happened. I think that might have happened. Uh, I can't confirm it myself, but I think that's true. Okay. So we're going to do something to get to know you better. I call it uh, it's a rapid fire segment, and I call it back in or back out. I'm going to ask you questions, and you say if you're back in or back out. Okay. Very simple. Okay, let's start easy. Okay. Selfies. <laughs> Selfies. Um, back in, but not with a selfie stick. I've never owned a selfie stick. I will never buy a selfie stick. I will never hold a selfie no. stick. I've got, I got long-ass arms, and I've just used my arms. You're, you're a normal person. You don't need a selfie stick. Okay. Yeah. Dinner alone. Yeah, I hate those things. <laughs> Beck in because I spent 16 years as a beat writer, seven on the Lakers and nine on the Knicks with a short detour to the Nets. And when you're on the road, you know, you go out with the other beat writers a lot. Sometimes you go out with maybe some team PR people, or maybe I'm in a city where I have friends. But when you travel a hundred nights a year, which I did for most of those 16 years, sometimes you just need a night to yourself, or sometimes it's just you and a book and a nice you know, you know, seared uh, ahi or something, right? Like you just need some, you just need to eat alone sometimes on the road. So uh, yeah, I'm in. Flip-flop and jeans. All right, wait, say that Flip-flops again. Flip-flops and jeans. Wearing f- Flip-flops and yeah. jeans. As, 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 a, as a fashion combination, yes. you're saying. Yeah. How many <laughs> questions, I know. Yeah, uh, uh, I, I'll say in, um, I don't wear flip-flops a lot myself, but you know, I've been, I've been known to rock the Tevas, you know, or other sandals sometimes. And especially when I was living in LA and it's warm, you know, most of the year, um, yeah, jeans and sandals, jeans and flip-flops, whatever. That's fine. Sure. Okay. I see you get fashion suits with sneakers. <laughs> um, I, I, I hate wearing suits. Uh, 
myself. It's part of the reason I got into sports writing was so that I wouldn't have to bother like dressing like a businessman. Uh, and then at some point, <laughs> uh, more and more people in my profession decided to start looking like professionals and wearing suits, which really uh, pissed me off. Cause like, guys, come on, man, we're in a, te- we're in a profession where we can just wear jeans and shirts and whatever, and we can get away with it. Why, why would you want to go to all the trouble of, of having to put on all that stuff? Um, not to mention having to get it dry cleaned and all that crap. Uh, that said, because I am pro comfort, I say, yes, I'm, I'm in on sneakers with suits because whatever you got to do to be comfortable, people should do. And a lot of dress shoes just really aren't that comfortable. Suck him. <laughs> ah, sorry. Out. Out. Um, yeah. I, like like a lot of like a lot of people of my generation, I grew up playing soccer but not watching soccer. Um, a lot of kids played soccer during uh, during my childhood, and nobody watched it. But it wasn't a, it wasn't a thing back then. Like um, it wasn't on TV. It wasn't a you know we, we we grew up you know at a time here where you know baseball, football, basketball were the major sports, and some people might have liked hockey. But I grew up in California where hockey wasn't really a big thing in the Bay Area. Um, it's before I grew up at San Jose and the sharks didn't exist yet when I was a kid. Um, so, um, much to my buddy, Mark Stein's chagrin. I am not a soccer guy. That, that draw thing is weird. Um, the draw the thing games can end in draw weird. Oh. Uh, hot takes. I do not do hot takes. <laughs> I'm just completely out on hot takes. I am I am Mr. Lukewarm take. As you can tell from like the first 30 minutes of the podcast, I, I like I don't think there was a single hot take in there. I'm I'm kind of uh nuanced and explanatory. I, I just I'm too much of a journalist. Serial as dinner. <laughs> I am pro serial in all forms at all times. Um, I think I've probably outgrown serial as dinner. I'm, I'm, you know, I've been married for some time now. Um, but shit, if, if I were by myself, my wife and daughter were out and there was nothing else around, you know, uh, a bowl of crunch berries or something. Sure. Um, I'd like to think that I, I probably wouldn't only because at this age I have to be more health conscious, but I'm not judging anybody who does cereal for dinner. Go for it. Especially if you're younger than I am and can afford it. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> All right, so uh, I got a quick uh, few questions uh, too, if you wouldn't mind. Go for uh, it. The first, which, uh, who is the nicest NBA player you met? Your oh, the, my God. The leg. Nicest in, in 26 years? Um, yeah. There are a lot of really good guys. Like I think one thing that um, maybe fans don't always – uh, you know, they don't expect this, right? Because you expect that like, oh, it gets testy and guys don't want to deal with us or all this stuff. The vast, vast, vast majority of players that I've dealt with in 26 years have been great. Um, you know, some are more willing to talk than others. Some are a little more guarded than others. Some have shorter fuses than others. Some are moodier than others. Back to Shaq. Um, but Shaq, but Shaq's a nice guy. Like I never was mad at him for being mad at us or for being moody. Like it's just, it's just who he is. Like, um, and there have been a few, a few over the years who I don't need to name who were guys that like I dreaded dealing with. Right. Occasionally you have somebody who's just like, I don't even want to interview this guy anymore. He, he doesn't want to do with us anyway. What's that? Makes a lot of sense. You know, it's, uh... yeah, no, I mean, like, from, from a, from a very practical standpoint, right. My job every single day 
is to walk into a practice, a shoot around, a locker room, wherever, and talk to people. And I enjoy talking to people. I enjoy asking them questions and I enjoy hearing what they have to say. And I enjoy learning about them and about the game and everything else. That's the core of being a reporter. And so if somebody is just hostile all the time, for whatever their reasons, they might be justified, they might not be justified. There are certain guys I just didn't want to deal with because they were a pain in the ass. And and I think in a lot of cases, unnecessarily so. But the vast majority have been really nice guys. Um, I'm, I'm, it's like Malik Rose was was one who like during the, especially like some really tough Knicks years, Malik was always just the epitome of professionalism and class. And so you, you, you especially appreciate the guys who, when things are, are, are tense or messed up are still willing to, to stand there and answer all the questions and just be human beings. And also, by the way, like look you in the eye or, or, or if they see you somewhere else, you pass them in a hotel somewhere at least say hello. Some guys don't. Some guys are just like, if I have to talk to you, I'm going to do that. But when I don't have to talk to you, I'm just going to pretend you don't exist. I'm going to keep walking. Like there's some of that too. So, um, you know, Malik was in that category. Jared Jeffries was another one during the Knicks years. Jamal Crawford, as I think everybody knows, like if, if the, if the, if everybody in NBA media, NBA players, NBA coaches were all voting on like one of the, you know, like nice guy award of the last like 15, 20 years, like Jamal, I don't know if he'd win in a runaway, but he would he would have a massive uh, swell of support. Um, Jamal was always great. My Laker years, you know, Shaq and Kobe are the guys that you need to write about all the time and talk to all the time because they're Shaq and Kobe. But the key to being able to write intelligently about those teams over the years was all these very smart and very, again, good guys, uh, high character guys who were the role players. Robert Ory, Derek Fisher, Rick Fox. Brian Shaw, Horace Grant. Um, I, I, I love dealing with all these guys. And like to this day, everybody I've just named, if I run into them at All-Star Weekend or they, they you know, come to some other event, um, it, it's like they, they actually seem like they're happy to see me as well because we have this these shared experiences. In the Lakers case, you know, three championships that they, you know, like associate me with these happy memories. I think of that era and, you know, uh, you know, we, we, you know, I was just along for the ride, of course, but there's, there's a certain funny bond that forms, I think, between the beat writer and then the people you're, you're, you're covering. Um, and even like those Knicks years, which were really brutal years. I see guys from the, from those years as well. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's still, you know, big smile. How's it going? We talk about our families and whatever. Um, you know, the NBA by and large is, is filled with a, a, a lot of really great people. And um, it's it's been some of the best aspects of, of covering this league for the last 26 years. Right. So my next question, you briefly discussed it. Did you think you enjoyed more being around and reporting on one of the greatest teams in the sport history, the two early 2000 Lakers, or writing about one of the worst uh, Knicks teams ever, the Eddie Carey, uh, Stephen Marbury? What's like the big difference besides if you know everyone are happy or everyone are uh, gloomy? So what I always try to explain to people is this, you know, as reporters, we have no emotional investment. I have zero emotional investment in the outcome of games other than, other than I don't like games going to overtime when I'm on deadline. I want the yeah, game to just end. Yeah, you can get that feeling in my own uh, sports uh, website. Always I, like... I, I, we, we root for ourselves. If I've got a great story that's about to publish and 
something is about to happen. This, like this team's on a winning streak and all of a sudden they're getting their butts kicked. That's bad for me because I had this feature story that I spent weeks on about how great they are. And now it's going to look bad, right? Like there's things like that. So we root out of self-interest. Um, I always rooted for, for sweeps in the playoffs, especially after my daughter was born <laughs> and I had a, a baby at home. I just wanted the series to be over so I could go home. Like it, it's not that I don't want to work. It's just like I'm a, I've been on the road for, you know, seven months straight and, you know, or a lot of it. So I, again, I root out of self-interest. Um, so I say all that to say, I don't, it doesn't matter to me whether the Lakers won three championships or that the Knicks were a shit show for, for, for those eight plus seasons that I covered them. Most of that, they, they had, uh, there's, there's some good stuff in there too, but a lot of it. Um, and by the way, the Lakers had plenty of dysfunction, even while they were winning championships. Yeah. So it's not just a joyride either. Shaq and Kobe are, are, you know, wanting to beat the hell out of each other at times. There's a lot of drama that was going into that good, bad, and otherwise. Um, but the difference is this, the, it's the atmosphere. And I didn't know this until I left LA for New York in 2004 to take the job at the New York times to cover the Knicks. I didn't know what the Knicks were going to be for one. I didn't know. I didn't know it was going to be that much dysfunction and losing over those years. Um, but the difference is this, the atmosphere, the atmosphere can, can affect you. So if I'm around the Lakers for seven years and even in their worst of times, when Shaq and Kobe, you know, you know, are, are feuding, when Phil Jackson's having his issues with one or the other of them, whatever else is going on, they're winning a lot. The basketball is really good. That's fun to watch. You're, you're witnessing history. That's fun to watch. And overall, the mood of the team is, is, is good more often than not. I go to New York and the mood is terrible all the time because they're not winning and there's dysfunction. And it's at every level, right? It's front office and coach are, are in, at odds and the coach and the players are at odds and the players might be at odds with each other too. And it's just, and Madison Square Garden kind of fosters a, a certain amount of paranoia around everything. Um, and so those just weren't very enjoyable years to cover basketball just because the atmosphere eventually affects you, right? And yeah. um, I, again, it doesn't matter to me whether they're winning or losing, it's immaterial. I have to file a story at the end of the night regardless. But if the mood is just dour all the time and tense all the time and people are paranoid and they're, you know, they, they, they're, they're afraid to say the wrong thing because everybody's worried about what the owner is going to do and all this, it's just not as enjoyable as a, as just as a human experience. And so um, it's, it's never just about the wins and losses. It's about the atmosphere around it. There are probably some losing teams that people have covered that where they still actually really enjoyed it because it might've been just a, a better atmosphere around that team. Or maybe it was a younger team that, Hey, they only won 30 games, but it was really fun seeing this guy start to evolve and, and other things. There was just never any silver lining in those next years to grasp onto. Um, the other thing on both winning and losing, you know, I covered a Laker team that won 67 games. I covered a Knicks team that won 23 games and there's a monotony as a writer that can set in. Oh, yeah. oh, Shaq and Kobe won again. Oh, they blew out another team. Yeah, I've already written that 50 times in a row. What am I going to write tonight? It's the same thing. So there's a, there, there can be a certain repetition and a monotony, whether the team is winning a lot or losing a lot. Um, and I, I did. I've, I have felt that at both extremes. All right. So my next and maybe the last question, unless the uh, staff has uh, something else, uh, plan something else. What do you think is the biggest uh, misconception about the NBA for the people who follow the league but not live within the association itself 
the biggest misconception that like fans might have about the NBA. Yeah. Oh. Um. I don't want this to, to come off as too negative, but I will say this. I think that um, one thing that, that you understand better being close to the game than you do outside the game is that while all these guys are super talented, right? These are the 450 best basketball players on earth at any given time. And within that 450, there's various you know, tiers, right? You know, we have our superstars, yeah. guys who are perennial MVP candidates. There are guys who are merely all NBA or merely all stars. And then there's the tier below them and the tier below that and the tier below that. But they're all the best in the world at what they do on some level. The, the, the floor is very high. Their ceilings are different. Um, what, what we don't understand or what people outside the game don't understand and what I think I do understand a lot better having been around the game for this long is so much of what separates the superstars from the mere stars, from the rotation guys, from the end of bench guys is not talent. Like there's a certain amount of talent and, you know, whatever, genetics, biology, however you want to phrase it, physiology. So much of it is about um, drive, about, you know, uh, motor, work ethic, dedication. One of the stories I used to tell about Kobe, it's not so much a story, but just kind of a, 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 a basic fact about him. Kobe was not the most traditionally quote unquote talented player of his era or, or even shooting guard of his era. Vince Carter jumped higher. Tracy McGrady was taller and longer and, you know, was more of a, 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 a you know, wingman, you know, or a wing. He was part small forward, part guard, whatever. But Tracy McGrady could handle the ball like a point guard. Tracy McGrady could do a lot of different things, but guys of his era, right? Like there were guys who jumped higher, who were faster, who had bigger hands. It was said that Kobe had, um, a smaller, he had smaller hands than like Michael Jordan and a lot of other guys in that six, six range. So he couldn't palm the ball as firmly, which affects you when you're trying to do crazy dunks all the time. Right. Um, so it's not that Kobe had more, you know, quote unquote, God given talent than so many other players. And that's why he became Kobe. No Kobe, as we know now, and people, I don't think understood it necessarily in real time, Kobe was maniacal, obsessive about the game. <laughs> he wanted to be the greatest, period. And he was going to do everything possible to get there. That's not everybody. And again, it's a wide spectrum when it comes to work ethic and 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 that that drive in the NBA. A lot of guys that people are rooting for and you think, "Oh, this guy's going to be an all-timer." Guess what? You're going to find out sometime down the road the reason he never really broke through is because he just doesn't care as much as, as some of the other guys did. Um, the best players in the league, they might be the most talented or they might just have, you know, some requisite bot, you know, you know, uh, 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 you know, um, not minimal, but um, some, you know, the, the, just the, 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 the level of talent that separates them from mortals like us, but what separates them from the other NBA players is that they just worked harder at it and they cared more. And there are, I, I hate to say it because this is the part that sounds negative. There are guys in the NBA who don't care about basketball at, at the level that we, that we assume they do. Um, some of them just enjoy the lifestyle, enjoy the pay. Um, it's what they're best at. They're drawn to it because, because they, they, it's, it's what they do. Um, but not all of them care about winning as, as much as the fans who are rooting for them do. And 
you know, it, it's it, that, that sounds uh, kind of harsh in some ways, but it is a basic fact. And it is why when teams are sometimes struggling to put a roster together or, compl- you know, re- uh, uh, repeatedly whiffing on draft picks, it's because you saw the outline of a guy who should be a really good player and you didn't know until you got him and had him for a few weeks or a few months or a few years that you see, oh, this is as good as he's ever going to be because he doesn't care enough about, you know, the rest of this. So um, that's something that fans don't often get. I have uh, one question and I want you to give um, our partner that's not available today. is starting uh, as our beat guy for uh, the Warriors. He's based out of San Francisco. Any tip you can give him how the best way to form relationships with the players? Uh, this is a reporter who's just now starting yes. out, you said? Okay. Um, well, if he's in the Bay Area, he's got one great advantage, which is that the Warriors are probably the most media-friendly team in the NBA, um, certainly among the most media-friendly, and they will always uh, make a, a, a great effort and much more of an effort than, um, than some of their peers. So that's, that's a, a plus right out of, out of the gate. Um, I think when it comes to, you know, creating a good rapport with players, there's two different versions of this. So I've been a national writer for the last, whatever, 10 years where I'm not attached to a team. You know, we talked before about my years covering the Knicks, covering the Lakers. In those cases, you're around the same guys every day. When you're a beat writer, you're at every practice, every shoot around, every game, and everybody gets to know you. And in that case, I think it was about, you know, accountability, about always showing up. If, if no matter what I wrote, good, bad, or otherwise, I'm always there. If somebody had a, a problem with something I wrote, I was always going to have a discussion with them. You, you, you don't get defensive about it. You just say, oh, wait, what do you mean you didn't like that? Or what, what, was, what, what bothered you about what I wrote? Oh, okay. And then I'll listen to them, and then I'll suddenly say, huh, okay, yeah, you know what? You have a point. I, I could have... I could have used a, a, a you know a different description there, or maybe that was a little bit too harsh or whatever. Or sometimes it was, uh, no, sorry, uh, sorry, Kobe, uh, those were bad shots, um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and those discussions happened, um, where where you know if I wrote that somebody was you know you know you know uh, forcing forcing the issue right, forcing shots or whatever, um, and guys get sensitive about that. But you have to be willing to in this business. If you don't call it like you see it, um, you're not being an honest reporter. Your readers expect you to be honest with them. And to, you know, it doesn't mean you have to be real judgmental or, or harsh or you don't have to be a dick about it, basically. But you do have to, to you know, you, when things are good, you write how things are good. And when things are bad, you write the things are bad. And you, and you, you try to explain why. And um, guys aren't always going to be happy with you. And that's fine. Always be willing to have the constructive conversation. Uh, always be, always show up to, to be accountable. Um, stand behind your work. And if you fuck up, say I fucked up. You know, like, it, it happens. Um, Kobe and I got our wires crossed a couple times over those seven years. And, when, and, and the thing with Kobe was when he was pissed, he was seriously pissed. Like Shaq would get into these snits, but would get over it a little faster because Shaq was a people person and he was more trusting Kobe always had his guard up. And so if, if you stepped over a line or he thought you did, it was tough and you're going to, it was, it was, you know, and, and so even on the ones where I thought, you know what, Kobe's wrong. Like I, you know, it, it, sometimes I had to concede the point, you know what, you're right. I screwed that one up. Sometimes he was wrong. Um, but 
he was never going to see it that way. (laughs) So you roll with it. You roll with it. You have the conversation. Um, you, 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 you be accountable and you move on. And eventually Kobe would, you know, kind of, you know, loosen up again and we'd be fine. Um, but it's like any relationship you have to, you have to kind of manage things and, and, and work with people. And, um, you know, they do their job in the public eye, you know, every, and, and, and from a young age. And that's the other thing. That's the other lesson that you learn over time doing this. Guys are coming into this league. When I started, they were coming straight from high school still, of course, but now they're coming in still age 19, 20. And that's young. That That's like people are still, you know, evolving, maturing as people at, at that stage. And so whether it's the basketball part or whether it's off the court stuff, as we're now seeing with John Morant, like we have to give people a certain amount of grace and, and a little amount of space to, to evolve because they're doing it in the public spotlight in a way that none of us ever had to. And we always have to, re- to, to try to keep that in mind and remember it um, and not, not be too judgmental about it and, and not think that, well, this guy did this at age 20, therefore that's who he is. Like, no, anybody who's still the same person at 25 as they were at 20, you know, hasn't done much self-reflection or much growing, no matter what walk of life you're in. And the same thing from 30 versus 25, you know, so um, that's another one of those lessons you learn along the way. One last question, and then we'll let you go. We gave you a very gracious with your time. If not basketball, what other sport would you like to cover? <laughs> um, if you had asked me this question when I was uh, a teenager or in my college years, I would have told you absolutely positively the NFL. I grew up in San Jose, California, in the Bay Area, at a time when the San Francisco 49ers were becoming a dynasty. And so the earliest sports, uh, impre- the, the biggest impression on me as a young sports fan was those 49ers teams. Um, and Joe Montana was the quarterback then. He was like one of my first big sports heroes. And so you usually are drawn to cover the sport that you grew up as a, the biggest fan of, that you grew up rooting uh, for. And, you know, I, I thought that's what I wanted to do. For a variety of reasons, I never ended up covering the NFL um, and the NBA. It, it, it's it's a we don't need to go into that. This is a whole other story. But I, you know, my my entry into the NBA is, is is I don't know. It's not accidental, but it's just kind of circumstances landed me here. Right now, I've been doing it for twenty six years. <laughs> um, but along the way, in being a professional sports writer, I've lost the the fandom part of me for any sport. I don't root in anything. I don't. You know, it's, it's just, that's not the way I view sports anymore. Um, so, and I've also stopped watching other sports. The NBA is so all consuming that I just don't feel like I've had time, especially once I started a family. I, I'm not, I'm not watching a lot of baseball, football or anything else. Um, so the current day answer, Stav, is nothing. nothing. There's nothing. No there's, F1, there's no tennis, no Novak Djokovic, nothing. All righty. I enjoy some of those other. I enjoy some of those other things. I've been to the U.S. Open, which you know I live in New York, so and my wife's a big tennis fan, so we've we've gone to the U.S. Open a few times. I enjoy that. Um, you know, I might go to a baseball game once every five years, um, <laughs> and you know, uh, if if people are all buzzing about the World Cup, I might even turn on a soccer game. Oh no, no, um, don't, don't do that. But but I, I I'm just saying, you know, you asked earlier, uh, and I'm, I'm I'm not a fan, but. Um, if, if things are, are interesting. So, but there's no other sport that I would cover. Um, it's, it's pretty much just the NBA. Great. Howard, thank you very much for your time. It's been 
truly eye-opening and great. And thank you. Thank no, you. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me, fellas. Appreciate it.